Good morning, everyone. Hope you got some rest last night and enjoyed your breakfast. And uh, I'm looking forward to this day with you. And just to give you a sense of, of what we're going to be exploring, this morning we'll be having a look, as you can see, at some of the, the psychological as well as the spiritual obstacles on the spiritual path for all those involved. And I thought it could be interesting for us as we're exploring this to, to keep noticing what is it that's longed for, right? What's, what's the other side of the protective mechanism? Right, that may not come into view, but could be considered. This afternoon, we're going to shift into looking at some of the, the obstacles on the psychotherapeutic path, both the psychological and the spiritual struggles or obstacles. And then tomorrow, we'll, we'll focus in on healing, what it looks like in both traditions. Of course, we've been talking about it throughout our conversation, but we'll really orient toward both the methods and the teachings that are available in these traditions to keep, keep imagining, keep living into increased well-being. And again, this afternoon, uh, we're so blessed to have Dawn with us, who will lead us in another session. So that, that is the plan for the day and for tomorrow. And so just you can see, does everybody have uh, your packet? And I'm wondering for those who didn't have a packet, was, yes, fantastic. OK, great. So you're all, you're all set. All right. So we're going to begin having a look at some of the obstacles. I refer to them here as pitfalls. Um, you can frame them however you like, but it's some of the, you know, the challenges that we face on the path. And I'm starting us off with the mentor. And as I was thinking about this, it occurs to me that we're all, we're all mentors, we're all students in the same way. We're all patients and we're all therapists, right? This is just the nature of, of the human condition, but especially if we are actively making efforts to work with the mind and the heart. And so if we think about our mentors, and again, you, you can be reflecting on yourself as a mentor, or you can be reflecting on the people that you have turned to for, for guidance, for sustenance. It is helpful, in my experience, to grant them uh, the, the truth of subjectivity and humanity. And I was thinking about Trilby's excellent reflection and question. I mean, are there people who are not dealing with obstacles and protective mechanisms? And I, I remain curious about that possibility. 
I'm sure that there have been mystics throughout time who access states of consciousness and ways of being that are extraordinary. Um, and in my experience, at least, um, there are also many, many teachers who are gifted with extraordinary insight and can offer real inspiration, but because of their subjectivity, because they also have a psyche, and because of their histories, they also struggle. And so the, the first obstacle that I wanted to note is avoiding fellow feeling through you know, a too cognitive or a too automatic or rote approach to the Dharma. Yeah. And so if we think about what might be unconscious, in that tendency. It's possible, I, I sense it might be likely, that there are many great teachers who wish to feel close to their mentors. Right? And so almost out of loyalty, they continue to work with the Dharma as it was taught to them, right? and to impart it in the way they learned. And so there's often an unconscious hope that the relationship with the mentor is intact it's internally, intrapsychically. So even after a mentor has died, right, almost out of respect, out of loyalty, there, there may be a tendency right, to, to offer spiritual teachings and practices um, exactly as they, as they were taught. I think therapists can do this too because they have reverence for their supervisors, for their mentors. Often earlier in practice, it's tempting to want to be like them, but also res respect them through how we're working. Of course, the challenge here is that it might camouflage the mentor's authentic subjectivity, right? And it might also interfere with the ability for the mentor to convey to the student, I am like you. <laughs> I am in the same experience stumbling along trying to work this out, sometimes clear, sometimes confused, sometimes steady, sometimes overwhelmed. And there's an enormous gift when mentors can offer that fellow feeling, that humanity, because it actually uh, creates a, a developmental opportunity for the student. Right? Kohut talked about this, Heinz Kohut, the great object relations clinician, psychologist, analyst, that when we're children, first we've talked about this a little bit, we need to idealize our caregivers, even if they're highly problematic. We need to feel like we're safely in connection with an idealizable other. But ultimately, we need the caregiver 
and we also need our spiritual mentors to humanize themselves in a manageable way, right? To, you know, to offer little signs that they are human, not perfect, not beyond struggles, not post-psyche. And what this inspires in the growing child and in spiritual students is the opportunity to reclaim <clears throat> what's been idealized in the mentor or the caregiver. Right. So rather than seeing the spiritual mentor as the person who's, who's done enough work so that they're good, they're steady, they don't seem to freak out. Right? They don't seem to lose it and become reactive. Instead, you begin to see, oh, actually, this is, this is I hope, uh, an admirable person who is you know, working on their stuff so that they navigate life in a way that uh, offers inspiration. But they are also human. And so maybe those ideals could actually be internalized and cultivated. Yeah. I was thinking about, I had a memory actually this morning of my teacher. This was many, many years ago. Uh, we were in his little, <clears throat> little center. And so there may have been six or eight of us. That's about as much room as we had. <laughs> and we were exploring the teaching of impermanence. And with great eloquence and conviction, he was talking to us um, about the truth of impermanence. And then he looked at us, and about five of us had had recent losses. And he said, oh, you know, Susan, you just lost your sister. Right? Pilar, you lost your partner. Amy, you just lost your mom. He went around. And then instead of carrying on with the truth of impermanence, he said, I feel a little numbed out. I really appreciated that. Right? That the, the truth of impermanence <clears throat> on a personal level is sometimes so hard to bear. That we do, we do turn away, we do numb out, or I know that feeling of it becoming so, so supercharged, so gripping, that there is some need for protection. I thought that that honesty was such a gift to us, right? Because it helped us integrate what it means to, to be on a spiritual path and to be a psychological being. Right? And then one of the people there said, yeah, it's hard. It's hard when you're dealing with shocking loss, right? Because he had quite a bit of shocking loss, right? And so it also gave us the opportunity <clears throat> to tap into our own empathy, our own capacity to offer care, rather than it never being bi-directional. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is the starting point. The second, the second point, which is connected, is teachings or views getting a little bit too rigid in how they're conveyed. And as you know, I'm, I'm curious about how that's been especially true around the concept of ego and self, right? That uh, if you're exploring the teachings of Buddhist psychology, it can seem as though the ego is by its nature inherently problematic that nothing good can come from it and therefore should be uprooted. And we spent a lot of time exploring this in our first retreat on self and subjectivity. But this is just one, one teaching of many that needs to breathe a little, right? Needs to intersect with, with reality and with complex reality, right? And, and the Buddhist clinicians have really focused in on this particular teaching that ego has many essential functions. We can't make plans without a consolidated ego. We can't feel invested in the future if the ego is, is too tenuous, is too fragmented. I would also want to suggest teachings on anger need to breathe a little, right? When anger is depicted as an inherently uh, problematic emotional arising, it doesn't make enough room for what it's trying to communicate, the, the pain underneath it or the unmet needs underneath it, right? So when we, when we tamp down kind of the multiplicity of self and ego and of anger, really of any facet of our being, then we lose touch with certain facets of our being. Yeah, Barbara, let's just get you the mic, oh, which I have, okay. I think just quickly, something else that gets lost in tamping down on anger and uh, and and um, sort of um, othering it as well as possibly ego, as you're talking about a sense of self, is it it, it pushes away sources of great creativity. Beautiful, yeah, right. So if we tamp down ego, we also tamp down great sources of creativity. Also, very much anger. I think anger can be a real source of creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Okay. I'll keep those here for now. Right? And, and this, is, this is a perspective that was reinforced uh, by people like Winnicott and others who said, in, in order to assert a vision, in order to make a painting that's yours and not somebody else's, you need, you need some healthy aggression, 
right? You need some capacity to put your perspective out there. Yeah, thank you. Sorry? Guernica. That's a good example. Yeah. Right. That's a great example. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Okay. So, let's just look at the next couple of points here. Avoidance of self-compassion through other-centric care. Avoidance of trauma. Yeah. So, I want to suggest here as well, there probably is an unconscious longing to be in safe enough, secure enough relationship with others. Right? And so, unconsciously, there may be the idea, there may be the belief that if I give all of my compassion to another, then I have a better chance of sustaining connection. I have a better chance of being seen, right? of being valued. So again, there's, there's always something good that's longed for. It's just that the method for seeking it will over time tend to cause suffering. So in this struggle, avoidance of self-compassion through other-centric care, and I've seen this, I've seen this a lot in Dharma communities, and it's understandable because many people who are drawn to a spiritual path have natural gifts for being other-centric, right, for noticing what's going on for another human being. This is a blessing, by the way, <laughs> to be able to notice what another human being is possibly feeling, experiencing, needing. But when all of the compassion is evacuated and given over to another, then as you know, self-neglect ensues and often neglect of certain aspects of one's own life, one's own needs that really require care. Yeah. Now obviously in, I would say the last, it seems like the last 15 years approximately in the West, there has been a more conscious effort to underscore the importance of self-compassion. <laughs> that back in the day, that was not a concept. <laughs> it was considered to be um, a covert Western narcissistic endeavor. And there were some Tibetan teachers who came along and said, don't, don't call it self-compassion, call it inner compassion. And I understood, I understood the translation. Because it can be, as we know, tempting to keep defaulting to our own self-concern. However, there are people, right, probably many of you, who, who tend to orient toward others. 
and might struggle to withdraw some of it or recalibrate the compassion a little bit so that it's, it's more balanced and you're included. And obviously, if, if a mentor is um, a serious trauma survivor, then they are going to need that self-compassion in order to do any work on the trauma. Right? As Karen Horney, she was one of the first clinicians who got interested in the Dharma when she met D.T. Suzuki in it was 1951, 1952. She, she tried to help clinicians appreciate that we can't do any meaningful psychological work on ourselves until we access some self-compassion. Because it will just be too treacherous. Right? If we don't actually have some tenderness on our own behalf, right? if we can't find some affection for ourselves and our suffering, then probably what will happen is critical parts will swoop in when we start to lift suffering to awareness. And those parts will be inclined to judge, critique why we're suffering, why we're not moving through it quickly enough or skillfully enough. Right? And so she, she encouraged us to just think carefully about actually the ethics of self-compassion, right? Because it is an ethical endeavor to look within and to work with our own suffering so that we can potentially heal, right? And that's, of course, a benefit to countless others but we need some inner conditions in order to do that work. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.